beloved Bhagwan, but the Bathhouse Sutra says. By contributing to the bathing of monks, people receive limitless blessings. This would appear. This would appear to be an instance of external practice achieving merit. How does this relate to beholding the mind? Here, the bathing of monks doesn't refer to the washing of anything tangible. When the Lord preached the Bathhouse Sutra, he wanted his disciples to remember the Dharma of washing. So he used an everyday concern to convey his real meaning. The bathhouse is the body. When you light the fire of wisdom, you warm the pure water of the precepts and bathe the true Buddha nature within you. By upholding these seven practices, you add to your virtue. The monks of that age were perceptive. They understood the Buddha's meaning. They followed his teaching, perfected their virtue, and tasted the fruit of Buddhahood. But people nowadays can't fathom these things. Our true Buddha nature has no shape, and the dust of affliction. Has no form. How can people use ordinary water to wash an intangible body? It won't work. When will they wake up? To clean such a body, you have to behold it. Once impurities and filth arise from desire. They multiply until they cover you inside and out. But if you try to wash this body of yours, you'll have to scrub until it's nearly gone before it's clean. From this, you should realize that washing something external isn't what the Buddha meant. The sutras say that someone who wholeheartedly invokes the Buddha is sure to be reborn in the Western Paradise. Since this door leads to Buddhahood, why seek liberation in beholding the mind? Buddha means awareness. The awareness of body and mind that prevents evil from arising in either, and to invoke means to call to mind.
to call constantly to mind the rules of discipline and to follow them with all your might. To invoke the Buddha's name you have to understand the Dharma of invoking. If it's not present in your mind your mouth chants an empty name. As long as you're troubled by the three poisons or by thoughts of yourself your deluded mind will keep you from seeing the Buddha. If you cling to appearances while searching for meaning you won't find a thing. Thus sages of the past cultivated introspection and not speech. This mind is the source of all virtues and this mind is the chief of all powers. The eternal bliss of Nirvana comes from the mind at rest. Rebirth in the three realms also comes from the mind. The mind is the door to every world and the mind is the ford to the other shore. Those who know where the door is don't worry about reaching it. Those who know where the ford is don't worry about crossing it. The people I meet nowadays are superficial. They think of merit as something that has form. They squander their wealth and butcher creatures of land and sea. They see something tangible and instantly become attached. If you talk to them about formlessness, they sit there dumb and confused greedy for the small mercies of this world they remain blind to the great suffering to come such disciples wear themselves out in vain turning from the true to the false they talk about nothing but future blessings If you can simply concentrate your mind's inner light and behold its outer illumination, you'll dispel the three poisons and drive away the six thieves once and for all. And without effort, you'll gain possession of an infinite number of virtues, perfections and doors to the truth. Seeing through the mundane and witnessing the sublime is less than an eye blink away. Realization is now. Why worry about grey hair? But the true door is hidden and can't be revealed. I have only touched upon 
beholding the mind. Thank God <laughs> that this is the last <laughs> Bodhidharma Sutra. I was worried that after bathhouse where he is going to <laughs> It has been a tremendous journey. <laughs> to the mountain top and back <laughs> into your home. Bodhidharma has been taken you the whole merry-go-round. <laughs> I have started with both dharma the name of bodhidharma means the self nature of awareness But unfortunately, I have to end up the journey by Buddha Dharma. <laughs> Buddha Dharma means the nature of unawareness of his stupidity. He got into this mess, but it has been of tremendous insight to us. Watching him, you can avoid the same mess. Whatever he has said before has sown his insight into the deepest potentials of man. And what he is saying now 
is just absolutely irrelevant. Once in a while he remembers who he is, but he goes on forgetting, it seems, or perhaps He is too much attached to his special doctrine of Mahayana. And much worried about disturbing the newly initiated Buddhists. In this situation, he must have suffered a lot. I can see, perhaps nobody may have noted it, but I can see his suffering. His suffering is that he is saying things very unwillingly. And this is the problem with all those who accept any doctrine, any scripture, any church, they are in constant trouble. If they listen to their own inner voice, it says something else. If they listen to the tradition, it says something else. And there have been very few people in the world who are ready to antagonize everybody. If Bodhidharma has said whatever was his experience, perhaps he would have lost all his prestige, respectability and the great name in the annals of Buddhism. But to me it would not have been a loss. To me he would have risen higher than anyone else just because his single commitment concentratedly and consistently is one and that is his own experienced truth. Nothing else can change it. You laughed listening the very name of the sutra, the Bath House Sutra. 
because you don't know there have been two rebellious religions in india against hinduism jainism and buddhism the jaina monk never takes a bath he does not even brush his teeth he stinks and this is thought to be a great discipline that you are not at all concerned with your body which is ephemeral which is going to die anyway why go on cleaning and wasting your time it will become unclean again tomorrow buddhism is almost a parallel religion to jainism they agree on all essential points but buddha seems to be more sensible than mahavira he wanted that his monks should take every day a bath they should remain clean that the body should not be condemned but respected as a temple of your divine nature but there were so many monks to feed them to give them your bath houses to give them clothes to give them medicines when they are sick was becoming more and more a burden over the society just few years before in thailand the situation became so bad that almost one fourth of the population of the country was monks the government has to pass a law that unless you take the permission of the government you cannot become a monk this is for the first time in the history any government has taken such a step it was absolutely necessary in a poor country if out of four persons one person does not work does not create and needs all kinds of 
things which are absolutely necessary, he is going to become a burden. Where half the population is starving, where half of the country sleeps only with one foot, where people not only eat fruits but dig out the roots of trees, boil them and eat them. hoping that they must have nourishment power because they are nursing the whole tree. They are nursing the flowers and the fruits. So naturally the roots must be having great nourishment. But it is an ugly situation. Gautam Buddha has to talk about such trivia because if it is not talked about then people start taking decisions on their own and Buddha wanted his disciples to be as integrated individuals, clean, pure, alert, in every possible way, outwardly, inwardly. His concern and compassion was so great that there are thirty-three million rules for a Buddhist monk. It is mind-boggling, thirty-three million rules. Even to remember them is difficult, but Buddha has taken care in every detail when to wake up when to go to beg your food, not to take all your food from one house but from five houses. So nobody is burdened. Five houses can give you small bits and that will be enough for you. On one house you may be a little heavy and not to stay in one city more than three days. So you don't create any kind of burden on anybody. Eat only one time a day, because Millions of people were eating one time a day. You should not ask for two meals.
don't have more than three clothes. Two to use, one for emergency situation. For example, you suddenly find yourself coming back to the place where all other monks are staying and it starts raining and your both the clothes upper and lower are wet you have one cloth at least to cover you the third is an emergency two are your essential needs but more than three you should not have these were essential to they look trivia that what nonsense is this a gautam buddha should talk about spirituality about growth and awareness and freedom and he is talking about these small matters but he had to for the simple reason because he has accepted the idea of renouncing the world once people renounce the world they are bound to become burdens and on poor societies so when he talks about that one who gives his bath house to be used by monk earns great virtues he is simply trying to persuade people that they should not think it as a burden but as a blessing when a monk accepts the food you offer he is not obliged to you buddha says you are obliged to him just his receiving your food on your part is a great virtue perhaps you have given your own food perhaps you have given your children's food you have sacrificed and you have respected a man 
who has no possessions, no money, he has said that the mother is blessed who gives birth to a child who is going to renounce the world. The father is blessed who gives birth to a child who is going to renounce the world. Because they are renouncing the world just to develop their potential to its ultimate. Help them. If you cannot raise your consciousness, at least you can help in some small way to those who are doing that tremendous effort of raising their consciousness to its ultimate illumination. Hence even trivia are not trivia. It would have been perfectly good if Bodhidharma has accepted it as it is. And what I have said, he should have said. But he is feeling himself embarrassed. So he starts trying again that it is a metaphor for something invisible and that makes his whole approach fallacious. I will read the sutra and then I will read his fictitious explanations. The sutra is absolutely clear, it needs no clarification. But the bathhouse sutra says, by contributing to the bathing of the monks, people receive limitless blessings. This would appear to be an instance of external practice achieving merit. How does this relate to beholding the mind? The disciple is asking Bodhidharma that you say beholding the mind is enough. But Buddha is talking about such small things And in your beholding the mind there is no place for such things. The simple answer would have been that I am talking about the essential. 
and buddha is talking about the essential and the non essential both he is taking care not only what the monk has to do the monk has to behold his mind that is his only practice awareness vipassana watching witnessing but the poor monk needs food also he needs in rain some shelter he needs some clothes and buddha has a very comprehensive view that it is not a question of a single monk when millions of people are becoming monks then certain rules should be made otherwise it will create a chaos in the whole society a monk is not supposed to ask what he wants to eat whatever is made by the family for itself he will take only that he should not inform to which family he is going to beg tomorrow because his information may make the family feel that now they have to make some delicious food some costly food the monk is coming to their home this may be an unnecessary burden and the monk may become a parasite to avoid all this he had to talk about such small things people ordinarily don't like and in those days very few people have their own bath houses their own even today after 25 centuries except the big few cities 90 percent of the indian population has no bathroom in their house they go outside the village either to the bank of a river or to the bank of a lake that is their bathroom that is their toilet
this is thought to be a great luxury to have an attached bathroom with your bedroom only very few people in india can afford it the country is so poor and not only poverty has prevented even people who had money enough in the days of buddha had no idea to have a bathroom attached to their bedroom you will be surprised to know that just 100 years before in the supreme court of america there was a case because the first man just 100 years before and in america the first man has made an attached bathroom to his bedroom it was thought to be against christianity it was thought to be such a dirty thing and the man has learned it from europe and he thought he is bringing a gift to america it certainly is a gift but the christian associations filed a case against him in the supreme court that he is trying to corrupt people's mind this is the idea implanted in his mind by the devil who has ever heard of a bathroom attached to your bedroom and you will be surprised that the supreme court ordered the man that you have to remove the bathroom at the back of the houses where it belongs they were called out houses they were not attached to the main house just at the backyard far away dirty places but in buddha's time there were rich people who had attached bathrooms and the most surprising almost unbelieving unbelievable thing is that in harappa and mohenjodaro two most ancient cities discovered in pakistan 
they are seven thousand years old. Some natural calamity or perhaps some man-made calamity destroyed those beautiful cities. And not once, but seven times. Because seven times those cities were built. One layer of the city is covered with mud, then another layer of the city again covered with mud, and people have been excavating those for almost half a century. They could not believe what kind of calamity was continuously happening. As they went on digging, first they thought the first layer, the superficial layer, was the city. But somebody tried to dig a little deeper to see what is underneath it, and they were surprised to find that few feet layers of mud, and there is another city. Then they tried again, again. Finally they have found seven layers of great cities, cities which had as broad streets as San Francisco or New York, and certainly cities don't have that broad streets if they don't have big vehicles to move on them. Varanasi in India is thought to be the ancient most city. Not even the smallest car can enter in the old part of Varanasi. What to say of a car? Even sunlight never reaches there, because on both the sides huge buildings just when the sun comes exactly in the middle of the sky, for a few minutes there is sunlight, otherwise the whole day there is no sun. A great civilization must have been there. I remembered them because all the houses in Mohanjodaro and Harappa, both the cities, had bathrooms attached to their bedrooms, had swimming pools as big as we have them now, and they had a system, 
a very strange system they had invented for hot and cold running water to every house. It is simply amazing. It seems they had reached to the same height of civilization perhaps better because the Supreme Court of America, even in twentieth century, in the beginning part, denied the man to have in his own room a bathroom. The future is going to be different because there are architects. I have seen few designs sent to me from a friend who are thinking a very strange thing which will be fought in courts by every religion all over the world. Their idea is not to have an attached bathroom, but to have the room inside the bathroom. And they have made such beautiful designs that the bathroom does not look out of place. It enhances the beauty of the room. But certainly it is going to be contested by every religion that this is going too far. Somehow we have accepted bathrooms attached to the rooms. Now these insane architects are trying to enforce an idea and I think that idea is going to work out. Their designs are just superb. Why have an attached bathroom? The bathroom can be made so beautiful that you can attach your room to the bathroom. <laughs> And in fact both can be in the same place. There is no need for any partition. It is your bathroom, it is your bedroom. And things can be made so beautiful and so clean. There is no question of... But it was a problem very few rich families had bathrooms. And the problem was bigger because the Buddhist monks could not take a bath in the rivers. They don't have clothes enough. They don't have any underwear. They had only three pieces 
of clothes, one to wrap around underneath, another to wrap around on top. Just plain clothes. To avoid tailoring because that is a luxury. They were just using plain pieces of clothes. One they wrap around their waist, another they wrap around their chest and that's all. It was difficult for them. Either they had to be naked, which was not allowed by Gautam Buddha, or they have to enter with their clothes inside, then their clothes get wet. So you have to see the whole situation, why Gautam Buddha has to talk about such trivia, it is giving an incentive to the people who have their bathrooms that allow the monks for having a bath and people will receive limitless blessings and there is no metaphor in it. It exactly means what it says. And the disciple is absolutely right to ask, this would appear to be an instance of external practice achieving merit because the man who is allowing you his bathroom is achieving merit. He is not doing anything, just allowing you to use his bathroom. And Bodhidharma says there is nothing and no need and no possibility either of attaining any merit from any outside practice. The only thing meritorious is beholding the mind. He could have simply said that this is only an incentive for people, otherwise why they should allow anybody? In fact, nobody likes his bathroom to be used by anybody else, and particularly by strangers. It is not a public place. Everybody wants his bathroom to be private, his own. And the richer people are, they certainly will not like the idea that strange monks wandering 
with dirty clothes, dirty feet, having no shoes, in hot summer, perspiring, collecting dust on the roads which were not coltar, tarmac or cement, they were just dusty roads for bullock cars. A rich man would not like, and you don't have any idea of the rich men of those days. They used to have in their bathtub not ordinary water, but rose water. It is a strange story of an strange humanity. One part is dying for food, and one part of the same human beings takes such a costly bath, thousands of rose flowers have to be used for one bath. These people would not like vagabonds, monks, beggars. They were all beggars in their eyes. Unless they have some incentive that they will get great blessings in the other world. Buddha is simply talking in business terms, and he is perfectly right. But the problem with Bodhidharma is that he cannot accept things simply as they are. He says here the bathing of monks does not refer to the washing of anything tangible. How do you wash anything intangible? A thing that is not tangible is not visible either. Only tangible things have to be washed. Your body can be given a shower, but not your soul. Your clothes can be cleaned, but not your being. But that does not mean that you have to use dirty clothes, that you have to remain dirty in your body.
Buddha was very aesthetic in comparison to Mahavira, his contemporary. And that's why he has more grace than Mahavira. Mahavira has very strong personality, but not graceful. A personality of a wrestler, but not the individuality of a lotus flower. It is not accidental that Gautam Buddha has become synonymous with the lotus flower. It is so fragile and so beautiful and so graceful that no other flower on the earth even comes closer to it. And he wanted his monks to be sensitive, aesthetic, clean, And naturally the only way was to tell the people that if you help these poor monks with food, with bath, with medicine, with clothes, you will be getting great merit in the other world. This was simply a pragmatic affair. When the Lord preached the Vathouse Sutra, He wanted His disciples to remember the dharma of Vasik. So He used an everyday concern to convey His real meaning. The bathhouse is the body. Now this is nonsense. And he himself in the beginning sutras has said, Buddha never teaches nonsense. And he is almost contradicting everything that he has said in the beginning sutras with tremendous clarity. But now he himself has got into a trouble. The bathhouse is the body. When you light the fire of wisdom, you warm the pure water of the precepts and bathe the true Buddha nature within you. Could not Buddha say something else rather than using bathhouse sutra? He could have told Buddha nature sutra. Do you think Buddha was less intelligent than Bodhidharma? that he does not know 
that it is better to say exactly what he means and there is no difficulty in saying it. If Bodhidharma can say it, why Buddha cannot say it? By upholding these seven practices you add to your virtue. The monks of that age were perceptive. If this is true, that the monks of that age, that means Gautam Buddha's time, were perceptive, then certainly the Bathout Sutra does not need to be called Bathhouse Sutra at all. It should be called Buddha Nature Sutra or any other beautiful word. Why bring Bathhouse in it? And if Bodhidharma can make it clear to less perceptive people and Buddha's disciples were more perceptive, it is strange that he had to use such strange metaphors. Bodhidharma is making the whole thing up. They understood the Buddha's meaning. If they understood the Buddha's meaning, that why he was hiding it behind bathhouse, they followed his teaching, perfected their virtue, and tasted the fruit of Buddhahood. If these disciples of Buddha has even experienced Buddhahood, what was the need to tell them in metaphors? Buddha could have been direct. Metaphors are needed for children. So what he is saying is right, but it goes against him, not in favor of him. But people nowadays can't fathom these things. But the Bathhouse Sutra is not written for Bodhidharma's time. Bodhidharma comes after 1100 years when the Bathhouse Sutra was told by Buddha. Do you think Buddha was talking to the people of Bodhidharma's time? And this is something to be understood, because it is a constant, repeated thing that people of older times 
were more perceptive, more sensitive, more intelligent than the people of today. Even today it is being said, in Babylon a brick has been excavated. On the brick there is a inscription which says people of the old days were very intelligent and the brick is six thousand years old. Gautam Buddha, Mahavir both repeat many times that people of the old days were very intelligent. But I don't know when those old days were. Because in the Hindu Vedas, which are supposed to be the oldest scriptures in the world, One man from this very city, Lokman Balgangadhar Tilak, has proved and proved with great argument and evidence, and such evidence that he has not been refuted by anybody for almost half a century. That the first Veda out of the four, Rig Veda, is ninety thousand years old. But even in Rig Veda the same, that in the times of old days people were very perceptive, very intelligent. I don't know when these old days were. It seems simply to condemn the people of the present day. This idea has been continuously used. Man's consciousness is evolving or not? According to all these people it seems it is going downwards, not upwards. In fact, the older and the more back you go, you will find more primitive people with more primitive practices. Cannibalism was a prevalent practice. The few cannibals that are left are in the thick forests of South Africa, but they are the ancient most people. If you want to see the ancient most people, you can go to South Africa, but be careful. <laughs>
because I have heard when the first Christian missionary went there to convert the cannibals and to tell them that God loves you all and Jesus will come to save you. They enjoyed very much his sermon and they took him on their shoulders and he thought that this is a great reception. <laughs> and when they started putting him into a boiling pot, he said, what are you doing? They said, just in few minutes you will see. And when the water started boiling too hot and the fat missionary in from the big pot, just his head was sewing out, he started saying some way to persuade these people that I have come you here to give you a taste of Christianity and you are killing me. They said, don't be worried. Once we have made a soup of you, we will have the first taste of Christianity. <laughs> That's why we are boiling you, to have a taste of Christianity. I think there is no other way of having a taste of Christianity. <laughs> These are the most primitive people. There were three thousand in the beginning of this century, but because it is very rare to find anybody passing in their area, they are looking all around, but nobody goes even close then finally they have to eat their own people. In the beginning of this century there were three thousand, now they are only three hundred. They have eaten of their own people twenty-seven hundred people. Every day food is needed. If they can get somebody from outside, good. Just a little taste of some Chinese, <laughs> some Japanese, some German, some Indian. Just as you once in a while go to the Chinese restaurant, they also want some taste once in a while for a change, but it is very difficult because people remain miles away from them. Everybody knows that that area is dangerous. People have gone there but they have never returned. Whoever has gone there has gone forever. Once they get, get caught hold of you, you are finished. Soon you will be cooked, 
may be stuffed with great <laughs> spices. You may enjoy it. I, I'm not saying that you may not enjoy it, you may enjoy it. The whole thing will be such an adventure. But as you go backwards, you will find more and more unintelligent, more and more retarded, more and more barbarous people. So this idea that is being used by all religions that people in the beginning were great and now everybody has fallen. This is not true. This is absolutely wrong. There is no historical basis to it and no logical support. And I want to say to you that you are the highest pinnacle of consciousness up to now. Although your highest pinnacle is not much You have immense potential undeveloped, but those primitive people were even more undeveloped than you are. You have at least some consciousness. They had no consciousness at all. They were just close to the animals. Our true Buddha nature has no shape and the dust of affliction has no form. How can people use ordinary water to wash an intangible body? He goes on repeating the same stupid things. Yesterday he was saying how Buddha can drink ordinary milk. Now how people can use ordinary water as if there is some extraordinary water available anywhere. to wash an intangible body. That which is intangible need not to be washed. Only the tangible gets dirty. The invisible, the space never gets dirty. The sky never gets dirty. The silence beyond mind never gets dirty. And even if it gets dirty, which is impossible, 
just for argument's sake, even if it gets dirty, then we will find some invisible show, some invisible shampoo, <laughs> which you cannot see, you will see just the empty bottle. <laughs> but inside there is invisible shampoo. I have heard in a New York shop, they were selling a certain commodity so much that all the women of New York were immensely excited to purchase it. It was invisible hairpins. I think no woman can remain without tempted if invisible hairpins are available. There were queues before the shop and women were taking the packages and going away and giving money. One woman just opened the box and could not see anything there. How can you see the invisible hairpins? So she asked the shopkeeper that I don't see anything. He said, how can you see the invisible hairpins? He said, that's right. I want tomorrow to come again to purchase few more for my daughters and my friends to send as presents, because this is something so new. Will you have enough stock yesterday, tomorrow also? Because I see so many customers that I had to stand almost one hour in the queue. He said, you don't be worried. We have been out of stock for fifteen days. <laughs> but it is an invisible thing. It, it does not matter whether it is there or not. You can come any time. It will be always available. He is talking something which is absolutely illogical, irrational. Even it is not common sense. It won't work. When will they wake up to clean such a body? You have to behold it. Once impurities and filth arise from desire, they multiply until they cover you inside and out. But if you try to wash this body of yours, you will have to scrub until it is nearly gone before it is clean. He is saying you cannot clean this body that is visible. 
if you try to clean it, you will have to scrub it. To the point when the whole body is gone, then you will be clean. That means there is no need to clean this body, it is useless. It will mean committing suicide. But you know that there is no need to scrub the body to the point that it disappears. You can scrub the body to the point that you don't have a body odor, that your perspiration is not creating a disgusting smell around you, that your mouth is washed clean, that your breathing is not disturbing anybody else. that you can use soap, that you can use shampoos, that you can use deodorants. There is no need to scrub the body to the point that it is completely gone. Then what is the point of cleaning it? Nothing is left. He thinks he is giving you an argument that Buddha does not mean the ordinary bath for your body. He means cleaning your soul. But he has forgotten completely that in his own sutras he was saying that the soul is always clean. It has never been unclean. That your Buddha nature is always pure. It has never been impure. You can remember his sutras. That you are already enlightened just you are asleep. There is no question of cleaning or doing any worship or any ritual. All that you need is behold your mind and slowly, slowly that beholding of the mind will wake you up. To be awake is to be enlightened. But now he has completely forgotten all those sutras. He has done such a tremendous mistake. He should have stopped the moment the ultimate question about ignorance was asked. He did not stop. One has to know where to stop, 
otherwise one gets into a trap now he is going on and on and he does not know where to stop and how to stop from this you should realize that watching something external is not what the buddha meant only the external needs washing the internal needs no washing and if buddha meant what he is saying then he is driving buddha also to the same stupidity in which he is only the external gets dirty and needs washing the internal never gets dirty and hence needs no washing the disciple asked the sutras say that someone who wholeheartedly invokes the buddha is sure to be reborn in the western paradise since this door leads to buddhahood why seek liberation in beholding the mind the disciples continuous insistence is that bodhi dharma's emphasis on beholding the mind if that is enough then why buddha talks about other things and bodhi dharma does not has the courage to say against his own master that it is not my business to sort out his things my understanding and my realization is that just beholding the mind is enough perhaps buddha wanted to create an outer discipline also side by side with an internal discipline that is his business that is none of my concern just a simple statement like this would have saved him from falling down the sunlit peak where he was into small things which he cannot solve his answer is again the same kind of fullness buddha means awareness that he has told so many times the awareness of body and mind that prevents evil from arising in either and to invoke means to call to mind 
if invoke means to call to mind, then why Buddha should not say, call to the mind? Why say, invoke Buddha? Why make things unnecessarily complicated when they can be made simple? And Buddha is not a man to make things complicated. He is not a philosopher. He is a realized sage. He speaks only in the simplest way and clearest way not using any jargon that can create disturbances in people's mind. His whole effort is to pacify the mind so that you can go beyond it more easily. And to invoke means to call to mind, to call constantly to mind, the rules of discipline and to follow them with all your might. And this same Bodhidharma has said again and again that no discipline can lead you to Buddhahood, that no rules are needed, that the only thing that can help you is simply awareness of your thought process, of your mind. To invoke the Buddha's name you have to understand the dharma of invoking. If it is not present in your mind, your mouth chants an empty name. As long as you are troubled by the three poisons or by thoughts of yourself, your deluded mind will keep you from seeing the Buddha. If you cling to appearances while searching for meaning, you won't find a thing. The sages of the past cultivated introspection and not speech. That is absolutely incorrect. Because what is introspection except internal thinking? And what is speech? Bringing your internal thinking to an expression. They are not different. One is the inside. First you introspect, you think, and then you bring it out. You can think the word Rama without saying it. and then you can say Rama. What is the difference? 
the difference is only first you were saying to yourself talking to yourself is introspection and talking to others is a speech introspection is a silent monologue everybody goes on doing it all the time it is nothing to do with sages even the sinners have to do it what you are doing all the time except introspection sitting walking you are continuously thinking of thousand and one things only few things you bring to expression but saying that sages of the past cultivated introspection and not speech it is not true because if sages were not speaking then from where your scriptures have come from where your vedas from where your upanishads the and there are 108 upanishads from where your holy quran and from where your holy bible from where your holy talmud from where gautam buddha's dhammapada and from where bodhisattva's words himself he is speaking and talking about sages who cultivated introspection only and not speech that means all your holy scriptures are written by sinners and not by sages a sage is one who knows himself and he speaks only that which is in tune with his inner experience if he cannot find a word to express it he remains silent he is not against speech he is not in favor of silence he has come to a space which is beyond language so it is very difficult to speak but it is difficult to introspect either because whatever can be introspected can be spoken just watch introspection is speaking within yourself you are using words if you can use words without speaking why cannot you use the same words in speaking that which cannot be spoken cannot be introspected either
because they are two sides of the same coin. This mind is the source of all virtues. Now I am helpless to say that this is pure nonsense. And it is nonsense according to himself. In his own sutras he has said that this mind has to be transcended, that this mind is your bondage, that this mind has to be completely silenced, emptied, in other words, you have to attain to no mind. No mind can be the source of all virtues, but not the mind. If the mind is the source of all virtues, then what is the purpose of no mind? All virtues include all virtues. Only sins remain. Is the no-mind the source of all sins? Is the meditation the source of all that is criminal in you, immoral in you, unvirtuous in you? But he is not in his right senses. Once he has trembled, once he has lied, he has not been able to regain his balance. This mind is the source of all virtues, and this mind is the chief of all powers. Then what about the Buddha nature? and its power. The eternal bliss of nirvana comes from the mind at rest. Here he comes a little bit closer to the truth, but not exactly to the truth. The mind at rest is a still mind. The nirvana happens on the death of the mind, not just on the rest of the mind, because the mind that is at rest can become any moment restless. The mind has to simply go. then only you can be certain of your absolute peace. The troublemaker is completely gone. The troublemaker at rest does not mean you are free of trouble. 
the trouble maker may be simply resting to gain a little energy to create more trouble again he may be tired everybody gets tired i used to live in a house with a friend and his child was a continuous nuisance his father was tired his mother was tired but he was the only child they loved him very much only i was not tired of him they asked me what is the matter he never harasses you i said i harass him <laughs> i call him and he never comes close to me he said how do you harass him because he is such a constant worry never at rest always doing something dropping something breaking something jumping from the sofa on the table <laughs> he cannot sit silently i said i will show you how he can sit at the silently as i went in he said i will sit silently <laughs> his father said what is the matter you have not said anything just you are coming and he is saying i will sit silently because in the half of the house i used to live and in the other house other half they used to live but both were connected from inside and the child used to come once in a while to my side i used to tell him that if you want to come you have to pay for it he said what <laughs> i said money is not the problem i will tell you what you have to do first you have to go and have seven rounds running around the house and it was a big house four acres of land seven rounds exactly no cheating no deceiving then you can come after seven rounds he was so tired <laughs> he will come and just flop on the sofa and i say how you are feeling he said i am still alive <laughs> and then i will continue my work and he will just rest so his father said this is strange you never told me because he has been torturing us i said i have found my way with him whenever he wants to see me or come to me he has first to pay and seven rounds are enough then he does not ask anything then he is not in a position to ask he is so tired he just 
sits on the sofa and most often falls asleep. And I continue my work. Mind at rest is not reliable. Mind has to go completely. To the point that it cannot come back, to the point of no return. Rebirth in the three realms also comes from the mind. The mind is the door to every world, and the mind is the fold to the other source. This is not right. Because if mind is also the fold to the other source, then what is the use of meditation? All powers belong to mind, all worlds belong to the mind, all eternal bliss of nirvana comes from the rest of the mind. The ford going to the other source is of the mind, then what is the use of meditation? In fact, mind is not the ford to the other soul, meditation is. And meditation always means no mind. When the mind is extinguished, the same energy that was involved in the mind becomes your meditation. Those who know where the door is, don't worry about reaching it. Those who know where the fold is, don't worry about crossing it. The people I meet nowadays are superficial. They think of merit as something that has form. They squander their wealth and butcher creatures of land and sea. They see something tangible and instantly become attached. If you talk to them about formlessness, they sit there dumb and confused. Greedy for the small mercies of this world, they remain blind to the great suffering to come. Such disciples wear themselves out in vain turning from the true to the false. They talk about nothing but future blessings. If you can simply concentrate your mind's inner light and behold its outer illumination, you will dispel the three poisons and drive away the six thieves once and for all. I have talked to you that in English there is no word 
which can translate dhyana. There are three words. First is concentration, which is the lowest. It means focusing your mind on one thing or one thought. It is useful in science. In fact, without concentration there will be no science at all. Science is the byproduct of concentration. The second word in English is contemplation, which is higher than concentration. Contemplation means thinking about a certain subject matter, not a single thought, but a stream of a certain subject matter confined to the same subject matter. For example, somebody is thinking about light. Then he goes on thinking about light, its speed, its division in seven colors, and all its possibilities, the whole physics of light. Philosophy arises out of contemplation, just as science arises out of concentration. And the third word in English is meditation, which is the highest. but still it is not an equivalent to dhyana or the Chinese chan or the Japanese zen, which are different pronunciations of the Sanskrit word dhyana. Dhyana means no mind. In concentration, mind concentrates. In contemplation, mind contemplates. In meditation, mind meditates. But in dhyana, mind simply disappears. Dhyana is a silence beyond the mind. The man who has translated these sutras has used for dhyan the lowest word in English, concentrate. This is a problem with linguistic people, those who know the language. They translate books from one language into another. And particularly when it comes to translate poetry, it becomes more difficult. And if it is a question of translating somebody's statements who has attained to enlightenment, then it becomes even more difficult. But the problem is people who have attained to enlightenment are no more interested in translating anybody's book. 
they are not even interested in writing their own book. They are enjoying their silence and their ecstasy so much. And if they at all want to convey something, they use the spoken word. Because the spoken word has the warmth and the liveliness. And the spoken word has something of the person who is speaking it. It comes from his heart, it carries some flavor of his being, it also carries some light. some profundity which is lost in the written word. Hence no enlightened person has ever written a single word. If you can simply concentrate your mind's inner light and behold its outer illumination, you will dispel the three poisons and drive away the six thieves once and for all. Just change the word concentrate. If you can meditate and the meditation has to be understood in the sense of dhyana, if you can bring your no mind to function, then all is light, then all is delight. And without effort you will gain possession of an infinite number of virtues, perfections and doors to the truth. Seeing through the mundane and witnessing the sublime is less than an eye blink away. At the end, finally, he comes back again to his original status. In this sentence, he is again the Bodhidharma we had started with. Seeing through the mundane, and witnessing the sublime is less than an eye-blink away. Realization is now. Why worry about grey hair? Why worry about tomorrow and old age? But the true door is hidden and can't be revealed. This is all that he needed to say At the time he was asked from where the ignorance has arisen. Going round and round and round, at the end he manages to come to the point. The door, the true door 
is hidden and can't be revealed. I have only touched upon beholding the mind. If he had said only these two sentences at that moment, and whatever he has said in between would have been dropped. Bodhidharma sutras would have remained absolutely pure, impeccably pure. But I have made it clear to you so you can choose what is the right and what is just so much prose. That which is going to help you in meditation is right and that which is just unnecessarily metaphysical philosophizing has no validity, no use for your meditation. In a way I feel happy that by coincidence this sutra came to be discussed and you have seen both the sides. It will help you to remain aware, aware even at the highest peak of your enlightenment. You can still commit mistakes, you can still go astray, you can still say things which are stupid. And the problem is that I cannot tolerate anything which is not the best. I want you to know only the best to experience the best. Only twenty-four carat gold, no pollution, no mixture, just utter purity. It was good to talk about these sutras because I could 
go on telling to you what is not right and what is right. You may be reading many books, you may be hearing many people. Just watch clearly. Because every day I receive letters from sannyasins that I have come to see some saint, some guru, and I know those people are just idiots, and they write to me that we are very impressed. And I simply say, my God, I have been working with these people so hard to make every small point to be completely clear, and any idiot can impress them. they don't seem to have the awareness and the clarity and the capacity for discrimination. One of the greatest Indian scriptures is Badrayana's Brahma Sutras. For the disciple he prescribes the first thing is a clear-cut capacity for discrimination. I can see why Badrayana has made it his first point, discrimination to see what is false and to see what is true, to feel what is real and to feel what is just hypocrisy. You have seen the Catholic Pope, perhaps many of you have seen him or met him, but most of you must have seen his photographs. Do you see anything that gives you the indication that this man can be the representative of God? He can be a salesman of any Sioux company, <laughs> but a representative of God. He should look at least once in a mirror 
he himself will realize that, my God, why have you chosen me? Can't you find any other idiot? In this big world, why have you chosen just poor me? I have heard about an old Jew dying and he was muttering something. So people of his family come close to hear what he is muttering at his death time. And he was saying to God, God, just only one request. We have been your chosen people for four thousand years. It is enough. Can't you choose somebody else now? If you had not chosen us, we would not have suffered so much. Now be merciful. Listen to a dying old man's last words. It is time you should choose somebody else as your chosen people and relieve us from that great burden we are being crushed continuously. Look at your popes, look at your Sankaracharyas, look your Ayatollah Khomeini, look at your Jana monks, Buddhist monks, and you will be surprised that these people don't have the presence of the awakened person. Neither they do have the words that come from an experienced source of authority. But you become impressed by any kind of nonsense. And this has been going on for centuries. It is time, it should stop. At least everybody should be this much meditative that he can discriminate between the man who is an arrow towards the ultimate truth and its realization and the man who is simply pretending. It was a good exercise for you 
to see how to discriminate. Be very alert. To be impressed easily is to be gullible. Don't be gullible. Otherwise you will be exploited. Not to be gullible is what Badrayana means by being discriminative, alert, aware. There is no hurry to be impressed by anybody. Wait, watch, look at from every aspect. And if your heart starts ringing bells, then it is a different matter altogether. But if it is just your mind saying that, I have found the right master, beware of your mind. Your mind is your greatest enemy. Okay, yes, for God.